keeping first things first. All preaching must begin with exegesis. To put it differently, contextualization, theological reflection, and matters of today are held at bay, we should be committed to a process of preparation that keeps first things first. By this I mean that a faithful preacher starts the sermon preparation process by paying attention to a biblical text's original audience and a text's purposes for those readers, and he makes this first audience his first concern in three different ways. In one fashion or another he, one, gives the biblical context, rather than his own context, control over the meaning of the text. Two, listens intently until he knows how the text fits within the overall message of the book. Three, sees the structure and emphasis of the text. Did you notice how nothing in the above list deals with contextualization? Contextualization is important, as we will see in chapter 4, but good biblical expositors trained themselves to hold off on that step until later in the process. Contextualization is a good dance partner, but she should never be allowed to lead. Put her before the exegetical steps in your sequence of preparation, and problems will quickly emerge. The trouble is that too many of us push exegesis back in our preparation, and we clothe the message in a short red dress of contextualization by focusing on culture and our ability to connect with it. It's like we want to spin her out away from us in exciting circles, showing off her long legs and high heels. For many of us, then, our greatest challenge will be to reorient what comes first. The first step toward expositional preaching is to treat contextualization like a woman you hold close. You lead her in the dance of exposition. It simply won't work the other way around. I can still remember where I was sitting on the day when this reorientation of mindset clicked for me. The Day the Penny Dropped I was twenty-nine years old when Steve Bickley, a pastor and friend, introduced me to Dick Lucas. Lucas is now retired as the rector of St. Helen's Bishopsgate Church in London. Bickley had arranged for Lucas to spend a day with those of us on the pastoral staff of College Church under Kent Hughes. This would be the day the penny dropped for me, and for all of us, really. In short order, God used Lucas to challenge our conventional approach to sermon preparation. In two fast-moving hours, he put us in the world of a very familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 13. When he was done putting us through our paces, our preparation for preaching had found a new direction. He had set our feet on a better course, one that still guides me to this day. First, Lucas asked us to keep first things first. This was harder to do than I had imagined. I had always heard 1 Corinthians 13 referred to as the love chapter. My only exposure to it had been at weddings. On those occasions, the preacher's approach to the text, due to contextualization, was governed by the joyful event before us. Wedding days are ruled by the themes of encouragement and celebration, and the homilies I had heard on the text were likewise embedded with those sentiments. To put it another way, the audience in front of the preacher ruled the hour never mind the audience to whom the letter was first written. Second, Lucas led us into a period of observation. He asked us to suspend judgment for a moment on what the text means or how it might be applied for today, but instead to consider the chapter in its immediate literary context. When we did, we saw that 1 Corinthians 13 was placed between two chapters that discussed spiritual gifts, and, in particular, the relationship between the gifts and spiritual maturity— 
and 14, 1, and 37. Third, Lucas asked us to search out the terms for gifts and spiritual maturity earlier in the letter. He wanted us to listen intently until we knew how our text fit into the overall message of the book. That led us to 1, 4 through 7, where Paul calls the Corinthians a gifted group. In fact, they did not lack any gifts at all. But in 3.1, Paul blasts this incredibly gifted congregation for being spiritually immature. He even calls them spiritual infants, verses 1 and 2. It was beginning to dawn on us that some in Corinth had gotten the relationship between gifts and maturity mixed up. They had begun to think that certain gifts, tongues in this case, gave them an advantage in spiritual maturity. 